Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Anyway, today uh, we're getting back into this series about because. And, and let me let me just first start by saying uh, we want you to interact with us during this message. So if you have a smart device or um, whether it's iPhone or Android or something else, go ahead and, and get logged on to the to the Wi-Fi. And uh, there's a QR code on your uh, bulletin, or you can just go to Quest forward slash share. As we're talking, as we're presenting some of the material this morning, we want you guys to engage with us, to ask your questions. Um, so later in the service, we are going to answer some of those questions. So I just want to make you aware of that uh, so that we can talk about those. But as we um, step back into the series, uh, I've been I'm really excited about what we're talking about for a long time. And, uh, and I love, I love the way that, that Peter sets this up for us. In, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 15, he uses the Greek word for apologetic. And, and it means a defense. That's what it actually stands for. What is our defense for the faith that we have? Let me read, uh, this uh, scripture for you guys. It's in your Bible, but it's gonna look differently than what I'm saying just because we have put together a lot of different versions to create this verse. And uh, so this is Quest's official version. And um, uh, we will be releasing the entire New Testament uh, in the spring with it. Um, I'm just kidding. That's not going to happen. But First um, Peter 3.15 says this. Always be confidently prepared to share the hope-filled reasons why you wholeheartedly follow Jesus as your Lord. And do it in a gentle and respectful way, keeping a clear conscience, so that even in the ways in which you are slandered for your faith and for living in different manner because of following Christ, those who speak disdainfully of you may humble themselves and soften their hearts because of slandering you for doing good, and you being so gentle and respectful even when attacked wrongly. Peter talking about our defense, our hope-filled reasons for the faith that we have. This uh, wholehearted following of Jesus as our Lord. The defense, it comes because of people who see our lives of action and they wonder why we live the way that we do. Do you get that? Like, this is not necessarily someone asking us why we're a Christian because we simply state that we are a Christian. They're asking us why we are a Christian because of the things that we're doing you know, it's, it's this belief that uh, when God intersects with our lives, when we follow Jesus, there's this causal effect in our life. And Peter, when he wrote this, he expected the followers of Jesus to have a different lifestyle than the other people living around them. He, along with every other New Testament author, understood this, that, that being a Christian meant that you lived a different way. It's this deep-seated understanding and belief in God that changes every part of you. It changes every action, every word, every deed, every thought. It has this effect. It's a new paradigm for us. It's a trust 
that we have in our creator, our redeemer, and ultimately our eternity. Trust. Trust. To trust that we want to pass on to those around us, to our family, to our friends, to our children, to our neighbors. A trust that we know will establish peace in this broken world that we live in. Trust in the Almighty God, the perfect King, our sovereign Lord, right? So when someone comes to us and asks us a question like, how could a good God allow so much evil in this world? Or maybe a question like, how do we respond to the harsh and hateful Christians that we hear about? Or will God send my homosexual family member or my homosexual friend to hell? Or why does it seem like God won't answer or hear my prayers? All of these questions we're going to deal with um, for the next four weeks, by the way. Uh, These were the top ones that you guys voted on. And uh, we're we're going to address them. When people ask these questions, or maybe when we ask these questions ourselves because we have doubts we have our own just navigation this journey of faith where we're trying to figure it all out um as as we ask these questions and and um we they ultimately all track back to this one critical thought and and the reality is most questions that we ask of god do this as well um in the compilation of all the questions that we got last week Almost every one of them started to, to come back to this one point. And, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of this. We're, we're questioning uh, God's moral character. We're saying, how can a, and, a, and I'm going to put quotes around this, a good God allow so much evil as if he's the reason that evil exists? Or, or you know, what, what, do we, what do we do with all of these harsh Christians who represent God? You know, it's, that's God's character in question. Or is this God going to send my homosexual family member to hell? Like it's God's responsibility, right? So that's, we're ultimately questioning God's moral character. It's as if we believe that he is broken or imperfect and therefore allows this stuff to happen to us. And that's really our assumption when we're asking these questions. And this is where we're going to begin today. We're going to talk about the character of God. But we have to understand that this is only part of the consideration. There is also this part that we as individuals play here too. And we're going to talk about this too. I think this is where we're going to resolve today. We have to acknowledge that our brokenness also factors in into how God deals with us. So we're going to first though deal with this question of God's character. So we assume there's a flaw in his character, and, and therefore, uh, um, you know, specifically today, we're going to deal with um, God allowing evil to exist in the world. You know, how can uh, God have this flawed, you know, picture of the world and let us experience the, the horror that, that we do experience, the evil? And, and this, is, this is really where I want to get to as we start today. If God is flawed... And then we look back to the New Testament with Peter and James and Paul and John and all of the other New Testament authors. Then why would we ever trust him? Remember, 
When, when Peter's writing this scripture in 1 Peter and when we read all of those other verses in, in the New Testament, this is, there's a faith in God based on a trust in who he is. So, so why would we ever have a trust in a God that is imperfect, that is broken? A faith like that is faulty. And, and I would suggest that if we believe that God has a flaw in his character, then we ultimately have no business in following him. Just let that settle in for a minute. A God who has flawed character, he's imperfect, he's broken. Why would we ever put our trust in him? We have no business following him, no business providing a defense for him. We don't, and quite frankly, we shouldn't. And yet we do. Yet we do. We defend him. Peter defends him. Paul defends him. Why? I, I think it's because at the end of the day, when we really consider what's going on, what we're actually doing is projecting our brokenness onto God, even though he doesn't deserve it. The questions that we have are really a not about God's character, even though we ask him that way, but they're really about us. They are better asked in a framework of how could a good God ever choose to accept us despite our brokenness? How could a good God ever allow us to be in his presence when we're broken, when we're imperfect? God's character is not in question. It's really about why he allows us into his presence. Ross? Yeah, Jeremy brings up a great point. I mean, honestly, if we ask all these questions about God, good Allowing evil, why does he answer that prayer? Why does he not answer this prayer? Why does he let this person die? Why does he, not, why does he heal this person? Every one of those questions ultimately comes back to a moral accusation at the core of God. And it makes it really, really difficult for us to trust him. But we all struggle with those questions. Even if we believe in him, we still struggle with those questions a lot. So let me, let me take a second here and, and shift our core question today. If God is a good God, a loving God, and he allows evil and suffering to exist, that's our core question. Let me flip it to this. What would it take for a good and loving God to create a world where love and goodness is possible? Let's start there. I mean... I mean, love is the one thing we all pursue so desperately want in our lives, isn't it? But how could a God create that possibility for us to even experience what we long for? Well, first, I think to create, to create that loving world, the, the world would have to be personal, right? Now, I'm not a huge Trekkie fan, but I remember one of the original Star Treks with, with you know, the, the, the really the 1960s version, right? And, uh, and there was one of them where Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy were on this planet, and it was all these beautiful women everywhere, and they were all, they discovered after a little while, they were all robots. And it was nice at first, and then it got to be rather annoying and meaningless. I mean, think about it. If you came home and your husband or wife was a robot... And you walked in the door, and you pushed a button and said, Kiss me, honey, but there's no personal engagement. How meaningful is that? Now, if you had a fight on the way to church today, maybe you long for that. But let's get serious. Let's put that aside. Okay? That really isn't what we want in life, isn't it? For love to exist, it must be personal. I mean, that's the reason things like pornography or a lot of sexual sin is so harmful to love. Because it moves something that's intended to be relational and fulfilling a need for connection and it turns it into something that is consumption-oriented. 
And anything that depersonalizes something that is intended to be deeply personal, in the end, destroys love and it destroys the relationship. It damages the relationship. So here's another question. What is love? So imagine with me just for a minute that you're sitting with me in my living room and uh, all of you are 14-year-old girls. Now, I know some of you, that's going to be hard to imagine, right? I get it. You're all 14-year-old girls, and imagine it silently because what I learned growing up, uh, raising two boys and a girl, is that the girl parties are really loud. So let's just, let's not get that loud. Let's just, let's be okay with that, okay? But imagine we're in my living room, and I ask you the question. Um, I say to you, so let's imagine tomorrow at school, you go to school and the boy that you really dream of, now just think of that, think of that boy, the boy that you really dream of, the, the guy that you really wish would pay attention to, that you really, that he's your heartthrob, the guy that actually once in a while when he talks to you, because all, you know, middle school boys don't always talk and they're just kind of a little weird, but when he talks to you, your heart just goes, whew, right? Imagine that boy comes up to you and says, I love you. What are you going to feel? Now imagine if you're all in my living room, what happens? Everybody starts to giggle, giggle. everybody starts to, heart, heart goes higher, smiles, they're all smiling, everything's going great, lots of great energy. But then, then I ask you the question, now imagine Tuesday, you go back into school and you overhear that same boy talking to a different girl saying, I love you. Now what do you feel? Now what do you feel? See, the kind of love we want is only found in the context of faithfulness and exclusive dedication. It's, it's why it often baffles me why, why we in, so often in dating approach the finding of love by practicing things that are not practicing faithfulness in that process. See, the second criteria for God creating a world where love is possible is that love is only possible within moral constraints, within guidelines within rules of faithfulness and exclusivity that restrain us from doing what we want in the way we want when we want it, right? We all get that, which actually that statement leads us to the third requirement for God creating a world in which love is. Love requires the freedom to choose, but that freedom to choose must also operate within moral constraints, within boundaries, within do's or don'ts. Imagine just for a minute, if I were feeling uh, terribly unloved and lonely, and I look down here and I, 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 today, and I'm up here on stage, and I look down and I say, Bill, would you, would you come up on stage with me? And as Bill comes up on stage with me, I pull out a gun and I put it to his head and I say, Bill, do you love me? What do you think Bill's going to say? He's going to declare his undying love to me, right? He's going to just, every which way he's possibly going to declare his undying love to me. So now imagine, uh, Bill goes home this afternoon, he's talking to a neighbor, and uh, he goes to the neighbor, man, I had this amazing emotive experience at church today. It was really exciting. It was such an eventful day. I told Ross I loved him unconditionally. It was such a moving experience. But he didn't tell him he had a gun to his head. Would that make any difference in what the person interpreted the experience to be like? Certainly it would. You see, freedom of choice is something that is morally constrained if we have any hope of love or even true freedom. It's not just the idea that anyone can do, uh, choose whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, and freedom results. I mean, think of it. Uh, what countries in the world do you know where people can do pretty much whatever they want, whenever they want, in the way they want it, where there are very few laws and, and lawlessness reigns? 
how many of those countries are free? When you think of Sudan, when you think of Somalia, are they places that are good that you'd want to live, that you want to go to? Are those good, loving places? You see, freedom without moral constraint is called what? Chaos or anarchy. Either one. I remember the first August we just moved. It was 1998. Our, our family had just moved from Tulsa to Eugene, Oregon. We were still one month in, and we were adjusting from moving from ultra-socially conservative and highly Christian to ultra-socially liberal and one of the least Christian places in America, in Eugene, Oregon. And, and uh, we wake up one day, and the Eugene Register Guard headline says this. It says, Second Annual Anarchist Rally Coming to Eugene. And the byline is, they agree to be peaceful and law-abiding. The rally happened, and my mother-in-law calls and says, Where did you take my daughter and my grandkids to? Because they were breaking windows, they were stopping traffic, they were jumping on the hoods of the cars that they'd stopped and dancing on the top of the hoods of the cars, and they were, they were burning things. It was just out of control. Is that freedom of choice? Yes. But is that truly freedom? Creating a loving world requires freedom of choice. But in order to realize love, even freedom, it's something that must be morally constrained, that we don't act on our desires and our drives whenever we want to, in the way we want to, and how we want to. Otherwise, it ends up harming us, and the opposite of love and true freedom becomes a reality. See, even the founders of America got this. The day after the Declaration of Independence was signed, Samuel Rutherford, one of the signers of the Declaration, wrote this. He says, he says, A nation must either preserve its virtue or lose its liberty. The collapse of virtue or morality or of God-given constraints of, on our behavior based upon how he designed us to love and live will always result in a collapse of liberty and will always result in evil and suffering and harm and oppression. See, a God, a good, loving God, created a world that is personal, that's relational, with the freedom to choose, even though that means we're free to say no, we're free to rebel, we're free to do evil and reject Him. Because that's the only way love can have a hope of ever being realized. And we get that, don't we? We even get it innately outside of the Scripture. Because we'll say things like, better to have loved than not to. Right? Oh, I forget the phrase. Now, I'm, now I draw a blank. Come on, help me finish it. First audience, help me finish it. Better to have loved and lost than to not, have not loved at all. So, now, let's say this afternoon... You leave church here and you go out and eat. And then you go downtown to the Huntington Center. And you go up in the elevator all the way to the top. Climb up all the way to the top. You go out on the roof of the building. And, uh, and, and you get out your backpack and you take it out. And you put, on your, you put on your blue spandex outfit out of your backpack, right? And then you uh, decide over the outside of your blue spandex outfit to put on your little bright red underwear with the little yellow band on, you know. And then you slip on your, your little red boot slippers kind of things. And, and you walk over to the edge of the building and you, you jump off the 500 foot tall building because you want to defy gravity, right? What's going to be the only thing that's defied or that's broken in that moment? It's going to be you, right? 
and anyone or anything you fall on. Now, that's really my fault because I forgot to have you put your S and your red cape on, right? So it's really, if I had had you put that on, you would have been able to fly, right? So, let's say, uh, you know, we, there's, there's this idea about breaking God's moral law that we hear about a lot. But Michael Ramsey, an apologist, actually says to that response, he says it this way, he says, In one sense, to break God's moral law is actually impossible. Because he says, when we try to break God's moral law, the only thing that we break is ourselves, right? Ultimately proving that God's law is true. And God actually speaks to us about this in Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verse 2. It starts this way. It says, I reared children and I brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. They keep jumping off of tall buildings trying to prove I'm wrong and, and they're right. And it goes on and says, the ox knows its master, the donkey knows its owner, and they understand, see, whose they are. They understand who takes care of them. They understand who their master is, who their provider and their protector is. But it goes on. It says, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and have turned their backs on Him. And then God asks the Israelites and He asks you and I some profound questions. He says, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. Why do you keep jumping off roofs and splatting your little nice blue spandex on the cement all the time and hurting others in the process? He says, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Does this sound like an angry God to you? One who talks about people as his children that he loves? Uh, does this sound like an angry God, a one who pleads, pleads with his people to stop jumping off of tall buildings and repeatedly hurting themselves and other people? Does it sound like an angry God speaking of the wounds and how they're raw and how painful they must be in such an open way? Does it sound like an angry God wanting to cleanse and bandage and soothe your wounds with healing oil? No, it sounds to me more like a, like a, a wounded, frustrating, hurt parent. A pleading parent. You see, all of us are broken by our sin. We defy God's law of love, of relationship, of, of forgiveness, of generosity. And instead, we too often in our own selfishness and our own consumption-oriented approach to life to try to get our needs met, trying to meet our needs at the expense of others. We, we tend to live life sometimes with insecurity that drives us to, to laugh at other people, to put others down, to tease or to compare ourselves, to make ourselves feel better about people, or, and we create these cycles of offense, of bitterness, of retaliation and revenge. And, and sometimes we're just in the wrong place at the wrong time when that blue spandex comes flying 500 feet down and we're just walking by on the sidewalk below and we get hurt, right? We live as broken people in a broken world. And yet as you read the prophets and they, they talk about the same types of questions as the people start questioning where is God in all this and they start throwing out their moral complaints of how God cannot, why is God not rescuing them, why is God not healing them. The people who are rejecting God and creating the carnage that they are complaining about 
are also complaining about the God who does not act to solve the suffering that they have themselves put in place. Why is that? Well, it's because we want free will. We want free choice in life, right? And that's actually a God-given thing. All of humanity has a drive for freedom, for choice, because God placed it in our hearts, because that's required for personal love to even be experienced. But when we choose badly, we blame God for giving us that choice and not intervening. And when others choose to say no to his ways, we want, we want choice when things are going well. But we tend to want God to be absolutely sovereign and treat us like robots when things are not going well around us. We blame a good and loving God for our sinful choices and the sinful choices of other people and the resulting consequences of those choices as they cascade across all of humanity, creating brokenness in this world in which we live. You see, our biggest struggle with this question of God allowing God being good and loving and yet allowing evil and suffering is actually our struggle with recognizing our own sin and its impact on others and sin's impact on all of creation and the cosmos. See, it's not only a struggle for us. This is not the only struggle we have around this question. I mean, there are a lot of unaddressed questions that we have that we're going to talk about, some of them in this series and some in future series possibly. But settling this core moral question of God, understanding why a loving God would create a world that allowed evil to be possible is the core of our struggle in this. We have to settle it. Unless we unsettle this understanding of the reality, as the Bible teaches it, and the reality that, that our experience points to, we understand that. Unless we settle this view, we will project blame in the wrong place. And we will live life not having a better response, a more healthy response to the evil and the difficulty around us. I was talking with my son Jared this last week about this question. If God is good and loving, then why does God allow evil and suffering? And I said, what do you think, Jared? And his first response while we were driving in the car was, he looked at me and says, well, Dad, that's the wrong question. There's a better question. He said, the better question is, why does a just God show mercy and love? And Jeremy's going to address that. I am not as smart as he is, though, when I try to turn my microphone on. Um, this is a wonderful question, right? It, it turns it on, you know, on its head. It's not, you know, uh, about this good and loving God, but why would a just God, um, who, you know, should exact justice for the wrongs done impartially, why, why would he instead show love and mercy? Um, I love that question. And uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really good one. And uh, if you're interested, I've addressed this question before in a previous series that we did called The Christian Disconnect. It's in our, uh, the part three of that, which was about a year ago. You can go online and check it out. Uh, I encourage you to. I address it fully. But I would simply say, just to sum up, that the answer to this question, the very best answer to this question, is that God is just not fair. Okay, that, that's that's really it. Like, why would a just God uh, not exact justice, but instead shows love and mercy? It's because he's not fair. We deserve death for our brokenness. We deserve to be separated from God for our sin, for the choices that we make. But instead, he chooses to bring us to him, to allow us to uh, repent, to turn to him and, and experience his love and his mercy.
It's his very character, it's his very essence that uh, allows this to us, which is something, honestly, that I think that we get a, a wrong all the time. We do, because this is something that's been implanted in us for a long time. Those of us who've been in church for a while, um, how many of you ever thought about why in the world was creation ever, you know, brought into existence? Why did God create us to begin with? You know, was it because he was lonely? You know, did he need someone to spend his time with? Or was it because he knew that we were going to get into trouble and he would have an opportunity to flex his, you know, salvation muscles and rescue us from all of the bad junk that's in the world? And, and, and I think that the truth is, is that uh, the answer to both those questions is no. The, the very essence of God is love. He is love. It's not that he does love. Or, you know, necessarily that he even gives us love, but the fact that he is love and therefore whenever we experience God, we experience love as well. You know, and, and for us that, that is often easy to confuse, um, his very nature with an act that he has blessed us with. You know, so was, was God lonely? Did he create us because he wanted some people to talk to or to, you know, play poker with or something like that? No. And, and we, we, we recognize this as we study more about the Trinity. This is a concept that is found in Scripture. It's not explicitly stated, but we do recognize that God is one, and yet he's three persons, and all three persons are God. It's the Godhead, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within these three people of God, there's this dance of deference uh, where each one, um, you know, like submits to the other, is humble with the other, and loves the other. This is known as a perichoresis, which is just this rotation of humility. One part of the Trinity humble to another part of the Trinity. It's beautiful and it's complete. The Godhead, three in one, is complete in and of itself. There's nothing lacking in the Trinity. There's nothing lacking with God. Does he have desire? Does he have want? Does he need companionship? No, he's got it right there within the Trinity. So did God need humanity? No, he had everything. He was in this complete relationship, a loving relationship, and it's a fully satisfied relationship. And so when we begin to think about what God is doing for us in giving us mercy and love, there's this new full realization of what we get to experience with him. Did he come to us so that, that um, he can, you know, rescue us or save us? No. God is offering us redemption because of his love, because of who he is. He's complete without us. He doesn't need to rescue us. He, he chooses this path of mercy and love so that he can offer to us the very same relationship that he has within the Trinity. Just think about that. It's a relationship of deference, of humility, of sacrifice, of humble submission. God, in the form of Christ, lowering himself to be like us, to be fully man, to live life, sacrificing his very life for us, and then navigating with us through all of the twists and turns and the turmoils of this world. All so that we might be able to experience the same kind of life that he already had even before our existence in eternity. That's what a perfect God does for a broken people and a broken world. 
He offers what he already has in completion to us. So therefore, then, the choice is ours. You know, will we explore the freedom that he already had? Will we explore and, and, and experience that trust in a perfect and loving God? This is the question that we ultimately have. And we're, we're going to um, start to answer some of these questions that you guys have been asking us. I hope you guys have been asking us some, or else we're going to sit here in silence for the next 15 minutes. So I'm just kidding. We've got some. Uh, do, you, do you have your first one? Um, so, uh, this is one question that doesn't, uh, well, I, I actually have a great one for the day, but you guys can keep asking some. Does God stand with Peyton Manning, especially since Tom Brady is a product of Michigan? <laughs> good evil, I mean, come on. That's a good evil question. You know, actually, uh, one of the things that comes up with this a lot of times and, and is in, in kind of implied in a number of these questions is not only is, why does God create a, uh, a good, loving God create a world with evil and suffering, but why does God send people to help? And a lot of times our questions around that center around actually a misunderstanding of the gospel. We, the gospel is that Jesus came. He took upon himself every sin that we have ever done, offering us forgiveness. That's already completed. Whether you've accepted that or not, that's already completed. Complete forgiveness for anything and everything you have ever done or ever will do is already accomplished for you. But the gospel is, the good news is, we still need to accept that. If we don't accept that, what we're doing is we're saying to Jesus, I'm not accepting you as my Lord. I'm not going to allow you to be the one who gives me that gift. I'm not going to allow you, Jesus, to define me. I'm going to continue to jump off of buildings defining myself and my own powers and my own, my own ability. I'm not going to let you create my identity for me. That's what the acceptance piece of the gospel is. Jesus, be my Lord, forgive me, and you define who I am from here on forward as I move forward. And see, if we say no to that, then what is hell? One of the best definitions of hell that most theologians give is hell is saying no to God and God honoring that choice and you being separated from God. That's how far freedom of choice goes. If we say no, God honors that. And we end up completely separated from God, completely separated from love. Now one person also asked, well, does it mean... What's what's the difference between that and works? I mean, if you have to accept grace, isn't that kind of almost a work? It's a decision. Yeah, it's a decision, but it's not a decision of something I do. It's a decision of me surrendering to something. And that's the difference of what it means to be a follower of Jesus rather than to be caught in religion and works. And I kind of want to address that one, too. Uh, The question, uh, is it up there? Um, Because it's coming through on our computer, but it's not really, it's not up there. It says this, if salvation is the result of grace and not works, isn't accepting grace a kind of works? In other words, you have to do something. Uh, I, I really like this conversation. I think it is fundamental to what we're talking about in this series of, you know, called Because, where it, it it's, it's, um, goes almost back to when Peter wrote, when Paul wrote, when James wrote, uh, it goes back to Deuteronomy 6 and this conversation that God was having with his people. And he's saying, these are, the, these are the commandments that you need to have. You know, to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and soul. 
And, and it's, it's this idea that we trust in God, we believe in God in every part of our essence. It's so deep-seated within us that everything that we do re- reflects back onto the world around us, Christ in our lives, or God in our lives. And, um, and so this idea of works, is it... Oh, now that question's gone. You see what you were looking for? He, we actually had first service, even though we didn't know there was another one for second service. Oh, okay. Um, you guys are getting a bonus question here. Uh, like the idea of works is, yes, it, it is about works, right? But it's, it's also, it's the fact that, that what we do is an overflow of the stuff that's happening inside of us, how God is transforming and working inside of us. So do we have to do? Yes. Do we have to believe? Yes. It's all in the same. It's, it's encompassing. And, and so, um, what we do should be a part of what we believe as well. And if it's not, that's where we need to start asking ourselves what we really believe. And I'll just leave that there for you. Flip up the top question, Dusty. My friend's daughter is involved in a gay-straight alliance at school. She doesn't come to church because churches aren't loving to her gay friends. How do I tell her Quest is different? Is Quest different? We're going to answer. We're going to talk more specifically about that in two weeks. But isn't that the core of what we're trying to get at? If we can give a defense for our faith and be gentle and respectful, we can build bridges of friendship and kindness like Jesus did instead of creating alienation. So that's going to be the goal of our topic in two weeks is to talk about how do we do that? How do we live with an understanding what Jesus teaches, the Bible teaches, and be faithful and allow also to have conversations with people who strongly disagree, who will be strongly offended in a way that build bridges of kindness and friendship. So that's what we're going to try to help us all accomplish in a couple of weeks. I want to talk about this. Um, I have a friend that believes at some point everyone will be in heaven and or the new earth. Is that true? She believes that everyone has the opportunity to accept Jesus after we physically die. Um, this is known as um, exclusivity with a, with a clause. So um, there's an exclusive belief that the only way to uh, enter eternity with Christ, with God, um, is to believe in Jesus, to put your faith into Jesus. That's the exclusive claim uh, that, that Christians believe. But there's this clause that says we have the opportunity to kneel before God after death. You know, and, and, you know, we read this in scripture that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the clause then says that if we don't, uh, confess Christ here in this life, we have this opportunity later. That's, that's where this belief comes. And where I, when someone comes to me and asks, you know, well, what, what about this? Can I, you know, will I have a chance to believe in Jesus after death? And I, I just simply ask the question, if you're, if you're asking these, um, you know, if, if you're wrestling with this belief in Jesus right now, why not choose to believe in him now and, and not risk, therefore, missing out on eternity? Because after you die, you may not have that opportunity, right? You know, it's, it starts to, to me, it seems like if you are considering Christ, if you're thinking about him, don't delay. Because life only is better when we live it with Christ. That's where true freedom comes. So why not now? is how I would answer that. And if someone is struggling with it, then say, yeah, I mean, who knows, whatever, right? You know, with the clause, this and that. Live with Jesus now. That's, that's what life should be like. So. so there's a number of these questions I think we'll deal with in, in part four of the message, but there's one question here, actually part one and part two. I understand that people's sin causes evil in the world, but what about natural disasters or people who are ravaged by war? That's part one. 
because we only let them do 200 characters. 25% more than Twitter, so we're generous. <laughs> I understand that we, and the second one is, I understand that we are all sinful, deserving of death, but why is it that just, why is that just because we live in a more stable society, we experience less of the evil and pain than others do? So it really gets it to this natural disaster thing, and that's a, a big uh, question on God, and, and makes us struggle with trust. And, and here's, here's just the way I, I think I would frame that in a discussion. If God didn't tell us about these things, then we wouldn't be able to trust him. Because we would realize that this isn't really part of a plan or of something he acknowledges is going to happen in regard to people's choices. I mean, part of this goes back to the idea even a natural disaster that we have to understand that what the Bible teaches about sin is that sin broke the whole world. The natural order has brokenness in it as well. But beyond that... Because God actually talks about, Jesus himself actually talks about there will be wars, there will be earthquakes, there will be natural disasters, there will be those things. And as much as that's painful, I don't like it, I wish it wasn't true, the origin of the the biblical story is it goes back to our sin created that corruption in all of the world in the first place. And God warns us about it. And because he warns us about it, even though I have still all these questions of I wish it wouldn't be like that, could you have resolved it sooner, God? It still allows me to trust God saying, yeah, he knows. He told me about it. I can expect this stuff to happen. So he's still a good, loving God, and, and, there's, and his plan is still there. Just to close... Unless we settle this view of reality, this core thing that we've talked about today, that for love to even exist, choice is essential. And therefore, the risk of rejection, the risk of suffering, the risk of evil is a reality that has already been experienced and will continue to be experienced. And unless we settle this idea as well, like Jeremy talked about, that God's nature is love. And we see that out of his perfection of love within himself, where he didn't need anything else to have a better experience of love, he still created it, and he still goes outside of himself to come to us, to rescue us from our sin, so that one day he can guarantee for us that we will also experience that level of love. Unless we settle those realities, we'll always struggle to trust his character. But if we settle them, we can trust his character. We can trust his plan, even when we may not like the plan. And we can trust his promises to us that he is going to fully restore a perfect love for us for eternity and a perfect experience of that. See, unless if we can't settle those truths, we're going to always live angry. We're going to always live with moral accusations and struggles towards God. Why don't you answer my prayer? Why don't you do this, guide? Why did this person die? Why did you... We're going to always have these moral questions that we're accusing God of, and we're going to live with anger. See, because we're not going to recognize that things are really our fault and other people's faults. We're not going to recognize our own sin and we're going to blame that on God. And because of that and because of our anger, we're going to actually continue to jump off of tall buildings on a regular basis, landing on people on the sidewalk, splatting our nice blue spandex over and over again, hurting ourselves and others, creating cycles of response because that's what anger drives us to do. It drives us to prove something different. But God actually invites us just a few verses later in our text from Isaiah 1 to settle this in our hearts, he says, Come now, settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow.
Though they be red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And then he says this, if you are willing, freedom to choose, right? If you are willing and obedient, that you will choose loves and freedom's moral constraints. If you will do those things, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. See, if we settle this view of life and reality, it allows us to choose a different response. I grew up in rural Minnesota. Most of you know that. I grew up around generally good, salt-of-the-earth, hardworking, good people, right? A couple of years after I graduated from high school, though, I was in college, I discovered in the newspaper that the largest child pornography ring ever, bro- ever busted up to that t- point in history in the Midwest was broken up, and it was centered in my hometown of 650 people. I found myself sad. I found myself confused. I found myself angry with God. I found myself angry with, disappointed with myself and others. And though a handful of people went to prison over it, the web of sin that created the environment for such evil and pain to take hold was much more widespread. Some of it was parents who were using substances and mistreating their kids, creating a vulnerability in their kids to someone else's influence. Some of it was kids meanly teasing each other uh, and, uh, and trying to make fun of each other in, in mean ways that created an unhealthy need in some people to prove themselves cool by doing things that other people thought they should do. And for some of them, it just left them feeling rejected, again, more vulnerable. Some of it was teachers and principals and coaches who were, did, who were inappropriate in their humor or unpredictable or rejecting or, and it added to the vulnerability. Some of it was parents who were having affairs and divorces, creating additional cycles of bitterness and anger and insecurity and vulnerability. Some of it was adults passing porn to their children or older siblings to their younger siblings and, and creating vulnerability. Some of it was the town leaders who overlooked the inappropriateness of one person in particular who was one of the leaders of the child pornography ring and they hired him as the local town EMT and policeman without checking his falsified papers. The sin, this web of sin that was all throughout the community in so many different ways created the vulnerabilities, created the values, created the addictions and created the drives that allowed for such deep sin and evil to take hold. Even my own sin and the sin of many other people who were more religious in the community in a, a religious in a horrible superiority way where we ended up, instead of reaching out and building friends with the people who were vulnerable, who were caught in acting out in addictions or acting out in sexually inappropriate ways, instead of, instead of reaching out in kindness, we put up walls of judgment and distance in those relationships and we added to the vulnerability in the community to experience this level of pain because we weren't acting like Jesus. We weren't being like Him So instead of hope and grace that we should have been giving to people, they were experiencing a reinforcement of their failure and condemnation and vulnerability. See, the web of sin affects everyone. Our sin is never an individual thing. The sin creates consequences. Every person's sin creates consequences that ripple through the ocean of humanity and affect so many things with evil and pain and suffering so abounding in the news And the reality of it abounding in so many of our lives or around our circumstances, so oftentimes we feel out of control. And we want to blame the most powerful being, God, for not being in control of the mess, we and others 
have created. But what if instead of getting angry, what if instead of blaming, we joined God in Isaiah 1 in pleading, as he does, to stop hurting ourselves, pleading with ourselves, pleading with our friends, pleading with our neighbors to stop jumping off that roof all the time and hurting themselves? What if we joined God as a parent in grieving the effects of sin in our own lives and how sin affects others around us? You see, if sadness and grief and mourning become our response instead of anger and blaming and fighting God, we actually join with him in knowing his heart. And we experience the promise Jesus gives us in the Beatitudes where he says, those who mourn shall be, what does he say, comforted. Those who grieve pain and sin with God will receive, as Isaiah says, the bandages and, the, and God offering us that oil of soothing and healing that he wants to bring to us, that comfort. You see, when we grieve sin, we also identify with others who are caught in sin because we realize we are there too. We are caught in sin, maybe not the same sin, but it makes us possible. It makes it possible when we respond to evil and suffering in the world with grief. It makes us possible to identify with them and then become part of Jesus' plan to bandage them and pour healing oil on their pain as well. Because ultimately Jesus promises that those who mourn shall be comforted. And he also says that every, one day every tear will be wiped from our eyes. And love in all of its fullness will indeed one day be realized. Would you join me in asking God to help us be that kind of a people? Lord, we do ask that your spirit would come and that you would fill our hearts with a sense of your forgiveness, even our forgiveness for being so angry at you sometimes and blaming you instead of grieving with you as, as a loving father grieves over your children, instead of even grieving our own part in this. Lord, it's so easy for us to want to look to you for control when we want it, to look to us when we want a choice. Lord, help us see our sin. Help us grieve our own sin. Help us grieve the effects of sin around us when we see people hurting, slighted, angry, bitter, abused. Lord, that we can join with you as a loving Father pleading, pleading for change, offering bandages and healing oil and kindness. Lord, that we could live in a place that is full of goodness and love because we act like you instead of putting distance in relationships, instead of keeping ourselves above and beyond other people and better than other people. Lord, would you help us to identify and bring your healing power to our community, to our families, to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.